0: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: I always knew that if I was asked to do something I didn't believe in, uh, that I would resign. And if decisions were made that I didn't feel were consistent with public health, I would resign. I mean, I won't tell you how many times I thought I was going to resign, but there were multiple times in in this experience.
2: Over the weekend, CNN aired a documentary called COVID War, The Pandemic Doctors Speak Out. As part of that, I sat down with several of the top doctors in the country for a metaphorical autopsy, a look at what went on behind the scenes in Trump's White House, and more importantly, the lessons that can help us to avoid preventable deaths in the future. On yesterday's podcast, we heard from Dr. Deborah Burks, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator under then-President Donald Trump. Well, today, we're going to hear from Dr. Robert Redfield, former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention during the Trump administration. He opened up to me about some of the challenges he and the CDC faced in this past year. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction.
1: How are you? I'm all right. You know, adjusting. I do want to get back to practicing medicine. I think that was one of the harder sacrifices that I did as CDC director.
2: Before he was appointed director of the CDC, Dr. Redfield worked as a military physician, After he retired from the Army in 1996, he co-founded the University of Maryland School of Medicine Institute of Human Virology, focusing on HIV and other infectious diseases. When the first COVID-19 cases began popping up in the United States back in January of 2020, Dr. Redfield and his team were determined to contain the virus before it spread into the community.
1: You know, early on, Sanji, I thought the United States could orchestrate an effective public health response. And it was based on, you know, unfortunately a false premise that we would be able to use symptoms as a way to identify people that are infected.
2: But looking back, Dr. Redfield told me that the CDC underestimated what they were dealing with. They didn't know that the virus spread silently, asymptomatically, and through the air.
1: I think that had we went out and tested, we found people that were infected that didn't have symptoms, and had we then modified our contact tracing protocols in February and March that everybody got tested, I think we would have come to the conclusion that we came to, obviously, in late March, early April, that this virus is dominantly transmitted by people who don't even know they're infected, and the real The real, if you will, enemy that we're fighting is not coronavirus symptomatic disease, it's the silent epidemic.
2: Testing, many would argue, is the original sin of our country's COVID response. We were testing too little, too late. And the thing is, by mid-January of 2020, well before COVID-19 was designated a pandemic, and weeks before the United States had its own test, there was already a test available to diagnose the virus, from the World Health Organization. In fact, that test was already being used successfully in many countries around the world, but not the United States.
1: In order for us to use it, it would need to have an EUA from the FDA. The FDA had to review it. They had to prove it and allow it to be used in this country.
2: But the thing is, the World Health Organization told me the United States never asked to use the test. Instead, the CDC was confident in their own abilities, and they chose to develop and distribute their own test. It was a decision that would come back to haunt the agency and its director. You might remember the big scandal that was all over the news last spring. Early coronavirus test kits may have been contaminated, leading to a possible delay in the CDC's ability to get those kits to health labs. An issue with the CDC's initial test led to some inaccurate and inconclusive results. In fact, the CDC had to recall the tests and figure out the problem, and all of that led to a significant delay.
1: So we told them they had to send everything back to us. And the CDC group then worked with the FDA to figure out the problem. Within about five weeks, with the FDA's agreement, we got uh, all of the public health labs of this nation to have an effective test. So
2: five weeks,
1: though. Probably about five weeks it took to correct it.
2: Five weeks, which many have called the lost month. When COVID-19 spread across the United States, mostly undetected, I really pushed Dr. Redfield on this question about the CDC's faulty tests, asking him several times to account for the mistake and explain what happened. But I really couldn't get a straight answer.
1: You know, people criticize CDC. Our job was to develop tests for the public health labs, not for the whole country in medicine. I, I was not, obviously not a happy camper that CDC decided to manufacture tests. We're not a manufacturing corporation. And the private sector was supposed to work with the FDA to develop that.
2: In the meantime, other countries were successfully deploying tests of their own, and the United States was falling further and further behind. In reality, the only possible way to track the spread of this virus was to test, and to test as many people as possible.
1: The most important tool you needed, Manhattan Project-style tool you needed, is you needed 5 million tests a day, you got to expand your testing capacity so you can use strategic testing to define the silent epidemic. And make that a priority because, you know what, the only way we're going to know where this virus is is if we test people. And at the time, we were still thinking we didn't need that because we could pick out people with symptoms. And we were wrong.
2: I think it's important, as I think you do as well, not, not to whitewash this. We were not testing enough. Agree we're you. still not testing enough. I agree with you. Why not? Was testing deprioritized in this country?
1: Well, it clearly wasn't prioritized to the level to meet the goal that I set. I think people have been talking about how many tests we have rather than sitting back and saying how many tests we need. Truthfully, I think we need 5 million tests a day in this country. And we're even now, we're not half there.
2: Scientists and doctors like to consider themselves above the political fray, immune to the whims of whichever party may be in power. But the reality is far more complicated, particularly during a pandemic. If anything, this past year has revealed the high price we all pay when science and partisan politics
1: collide. So I didn't expect it to be political. I expected that I would run that agency and have the full support of the Secretary of Health to do the job as I felt I needed, I didn't expect, uh, let's just say, uh, the degree I think of engagement of the secretary's office in trying to uh, force their their perspectives into the agency.
2: Now, maybe that was a bit naive of Dr. Redfield, who was appointed by then President Trump. During our interview, Dr. Redfield said several times that he was pressured. By the Office of the Secretary at the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS for short. The CDC, NIH, and FDA, these are all federal agencies that you've become very familiar with this past year, they are all operating divisions under HHS. And at the time, HHS was headed by Secretary Alex
1: Azar. What was the type of relationship that you you would say you had with Secretary Azar? It's interesting when you say relationship. You know, I expected to have an individual that his full focus was to help make me more effective. Uh, I didn't get that. And a lot of people think the challenges that the CDC director had were with the White House. I didn't have really very difficult challenges with the White House. The challenges I had with the Office of the Secretary. What would happen? Well, I think some of the ones that were the most notable that I was the most offended by was the calls that wanted me to pressure and change the MMWR.
2: MMWR. That's the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. It's a CDC-published roundup of important research on disease and death, as well as recommendations. It is highly revered in the world of public health. Doctors and scientists of all stripes rely on these reports to inform their decisions, and these are often decisions of life and death.
1: You know, I was on more than one occasion... Um, called by the secretary and his leadership, um, directing me to change the MMWR. Now he may deny that, but it's true. And the one time that was the most egregious was not only was I pressured by the secretary in his office and his lawyers, I was also pressured uh, after that went on for an hour. uh, As I was driving home, his lawyer and his chief of staff called and pressured me again for at least another hour. And, you know, even to the point of, you know, like accusing me of failing to make this change that would cost, you know, thousands of lives. And it was pretty bad. And I finally had a moment in life where I said, you know, enough's enough. You know, if you want to fire me, fire me. Enough's enough. I'm I'm not changing the MMWR. The
2: former secretary declined our request to be interviewed but provided a statement which states in part that, quote, any suggestion that I pressured or otherwise asked Dr. Redfield to change the content of a single scientific peer-reviewed MMWR article is false. In a separate statement, Azar's former chief of staff, general counsel, and other senior staff members also pushed back at Redfield's account, stating in part that, quote, Secretary Azar and his immediate staff always regarded the MMWR as sacrosanct. I'm struck because sometimes I, I hear about things that have happened in the United States, and I think those are the sorts of things that happen in other countries. They don't happen here. And then you describe a situation like this, that's the United States. It's hard to believe. Yeah, it was hard.
1: It was the worst. But one thing you'll know about me, Sanjay, is I spent 23 years in the military. I am a command chain kind of guy. And if I can't stay in the command chain, then I'm going to leave. And I'll decide to stay in the command chain as long as I think I still have value for the nation. And that's what I did.
2: CDC, FDA, NIH. These aren't just important acronyms. They represent our country's most trusted scientific institutions. And over the past year, that trust has sadly eroded, a legacy of this pandemic that many worry will outlast all of the doctors who tried to lead us through it.
1: Well, I I personally have felt that this job should be a seven to 10 year appointment. I feel the same way about NIH and the FDA. I do not think these jobs should be politically aligned. It doesn't mean who's ever in charge can't make the appointment, but I think these are important jobs to get out of the political cycle, for sure. But just in terms of the pandemic response in this country,
2: what was the, I'm using a metaphor here as you realize, but the primary cause of
1: death with regard to our pandemic response, what was the biggest, Failure. We need a strong structural foundation that delivers the resources to allow the public health structure of this nation, you know, to be able to build the public health uh, foundation that this nation needs. I think that, when you ask me, what is, what is the cause of death? I think the cause of death was the lack of purposeful investment in public health infrastructure for this nation, over the last 30 to 50 years, and we paid a big price.
2: A staggering one in three Americans has lost someone to COVID-19 according to a recent survey. One in three. It's a painful reality that has solidified this pandemic as one of the deadliest chapters in American history. But what is still yet to be written is what we do next. I hope that this metaphorical autopsy might prove instructive and provide some learning from all these mistakes now one more thing you might have heard on the news over the weekend as part of my longer conversation with dr redfield he also told me that he believes the origin of this pandemic was a lab in china that this was essentially a lab leak now this is a controversial politically charged theory and it doesn't have evidence the world health organization has said the lab leak theory is extremely unlikely. But they are also going to be releasing a 400-page report that will hopefully give us some more answers. If you want to hear more, you can find the full documentary on the CNN Go app or on demand. Just search COVID War. Now, in addition to Drs. Redfield and Burks, I also spoke with Dr. Stephen Hahn, Robert Kadlik, Brett Gerard, and Anthony Fauci. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.